Okay, Joshua chapter 9 is where we pick it up this evening. Kind of an interesting thing as we look at chapter 9 now, because if Joshua chapter 6, the people of Jericho is a good picture perhaps of the world system and how it had to be overcome by faith uh, and how there was no way with that strong system there of Jericho they were going to overcome that on their own and of course if that's a picture of the world then perhaps Joshua chapter 7 and 8 then are a good picture of the flesh uh, whereby ultimately a lot of times another one of our enemies in our own lives is our sinful flesh and because of that sometimes we underestimate the strength of our flesh and our flesh defeats us but yet if we come back to the Lord and humility and repentance and we follow his leading he can give us the victory over our flesh and the weaknesses of our flesh and then of course Joshua chapter 9 now we see the Israelites face the the trickery and the deception here of the Gibeonites and uh, I think chapter 9 in some ways is a picture of the third of our great spiritual enemies that we face as Christians which is the devil uh, who is the master of deception and the Bible certainly shows us in the New Testament that these are three perpetual enemies that are against all of us the world system our flesh, our sinful nature, and the devil himself. And I just think as we look at the book of Joshua and we talk about the spiritual parallels of how it's a picture of the promised life in the spirit and taking territory and claiming the victories and the promises of God, how in some ways perhaps the Holy Spirit has laid out even those enemies here for us. Jericho picturing the world, Ai picturing our flesh, and the Gibeonites in some ways in their efforts here we'll see kind of picturing the devil and his deceptions and so forth. Now as we come to chapter 9, remember <clears throat> Israel has just now accomplished two pretty significant victories. They've come into the Canaan land They've defeated the people of Jericho by a great miraculous work of God, the walls falling down. They've defeated the people of Ai, and no doubt word is beginning to spread among the Canaanite people that these God-fearing people who serve this Jehovah God have now come into our land, and they seem to be claiming territory uh, without much resistance, which brings us, therefore, to what we come to in chapter 9, verse 1. If you'll pick it up there with me, it says, And it came to pass... When all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan in the hills and in the lowland and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard about it. And of course, that's a reference to hearing about the victories that are taking place now over Jericho, over the people of Ai, as they begin to hear now the different uh, tribal territories, that verse 2 says, they then gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. So uh, very interesting now, it seems there's almost this effort of an alliance now of these other nations that come together, nations which keep in mind were in some ways perennial enemies of one another, always conflict back and forth between them historically. But yet it isn't an interesting how sometimes when it comes around the nature of the Lord, how uh, all of a sudden uh, people can kind of come together in alliance. And the idea is, look, we may not like each other, but anything but this God stuff <laughs> and whatever we got to do to just unify, to just keep God and his people and his purposes held back. It's amazing how uh, you know enemies around the Lord and the things of the Lord can come together real quick in alliances and to set aside their differences to hold back uh, Joshua and his 
his army is what they want to do here and today. That seems to be the case in many ways uh, to hold back Jesus and the army of the Lord, you and I as Christians and believers. So this alliance seems to be forming now. We'll see more of this as uh, the chapters unfold. But verse 3 now, notice... There's a different approach that the people of Gibeon take. One of these nations or people groups there in the land, they're not going to come with a direct frontal attack. Uh, They think that's not going to be successful. So it says in verse 3, when the inhabitants of Gibeon, now Gibeon's about 25 miles, just for your frame of reference, from the camp of Gilgal, which is where Israel would always retreat back to. After these battles, Gilgal was the place, it seems, where they made camp. So this is within the land of of Canaan, the people of the land, Gibeon, about 25 miles from where Israel would be camped. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, it says, verse 4, they worked craftily and they pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him, to the men of Israel, we have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant or treaty with us. So the the people of Gibeon, they take a different approach. They're not going to make a direct frontal assault. Instead, they choose to, in a sense, take the route of deception, to to, to use uh, deceit in a way whereby they can still be successful, but do it through the process of deceiving and lying in a very sneaky way. And of course, verse four describes how they worked. It says they worked craftily, and they pretended to be something that they are not. And again, this is certainly a a very fitting description of how the devil so often works. The devil is the master of deception. Uh, They come to Joshua, and they have all of their uh, garments tattered and worn out, and so they basically ruin their their sacks and their wineskins, and they make it look like they've traveled from this far country and that at one time these things were all in good shape, but yet they've traveled from so far, perhaps taking uh, months or so forth to get there, and by the time they get there, their provisions are all worn out, their bread is dry and moldy, and they say, we've come from such a far country away and will you make a covenant with us? And of course, they're just bold-faced lying and in a very sneaky way, they're pretending to be something they're not in order to draw Joshua and the people of God into something that's not God's will for their lives. And this is exactly how the devil works. Remember, Jesus said of, of the devil that not only does he lie, but Jesus said he is the father of lies, indicating that he is the one, a father is one who gives birth or origin to something. And what Jesus was saying is the devil's not just a good liar. He is the one who gives birth or origin to every single lie that ever comes into existence in humanity. However, the lie is perpetuated. You know, it's often been said before that Uh, I forget what the exact statement was, but, you know, while the truth is still tying its shoelaces, a lie can make a trip all the way around the world. (laughs) And and, it's so true. And the devil understands this. So whether it be through media, whether it be through just the, the crazy thoughts in our own heads sometimes and the lies that we find ourselves 
believing and, and buying into because of our feelings or experiences or the things that people say or you know whatever it may be in whatever form or fashion, the devil is the one who gives birth to all of the lies that exist which seek to, in a crafty way, pretend to be something that is not true but yet causes us as God's people to buy into those things in our belief in our actions, our attitudes, in our behavior, that then when we buy into that lie, we then entering into things that are not God's will for our lives that only become harmful and destructive and take us outside of God's will. And of course, this is just a picture how they come now. It says working craftily, craftily pretending to be ambassadors. Interesting, Paul even speaks out how in 2 Corinthians 11 that the devil himself, he says they're masquerades as an angel of light. And then he goes so far to say, and his ministers, think about that. And he says his ministers, they, they propose themselves to be ministers of righteousness. In other words, the Bible is telling us the truth of God's word that the devil has his own ministers. The devil has those in place in the world among the spheres of spiritual life and influence who appear as ministers of righteousness, but yet they are actually ministers of Satan himself. They're plants of the devil, acting as ambassadors of the Lord, acting in that capacity. And why? Because the devil himself is as masquerade as an angel light. The devil doesn't you know, come to us in a way whereby he's easily recognizable. I mean, that would just be a foolish military strategy. He wants to be effective. So the devil represents himself as an angel of light, the Bible even says, which is very interesting. Look at how some cults have been began their origins. Oh, I had this experience where this angelic being came to me and said, here's these special spectacles to read these specific tablets and they'll give you special insights. Or isn't it interesting, you'll hear people describe on occasion, you know, I, I had this experience and there was this being that was full of light in this dream or this near-death experience. Well, you need to be careful what, what what's what's at on the other side of that light <laughs> the devil himself masquerades as angels of light and therefore he will at times send his ambassadors out in very sneaky deceptive ways pretending to be what they're not acting in a crafty way working craftily the devil is very wise in the way in which he works and we have to be on guard against this and realize this is the existence of what's around us and at times there are going to be pretenders the devil's going to put out his con artists and his con men and women in certain ways that are going to put on a pretend act in some form or fashion to just use the bait to lure us into something to get us into things that are unhealthy, whether it's wrong ideas and theology spiritually, whether it's wrong relationships, which that's what they're asking for here, and make a treaty with us. We're from far away. Enter into a relationship with us. Listen, do you think the devil is not going to at times use these kind of things to draw us into relationships as Christians that we shouldn't get ourselves into romantically or even just friendships or business relationships where we get unequally yoked and, and people put on pretense and the devil is just using the whole thing to just draw us in to get us connected to things that we should not be connected to as God's people. And this is what's happening here. They're saying, please make a treaty with us. Look, we're from far away. You can tell everything about us looks like that. Now, remember here as we're looking at this chapter together, De Deuteronomy chapter 7 
Deuteronomy chapter 12, I believe Exodus 34, if my memory recalls right, are some passages where God clearly commanded the nation of Israel to make absolutely no treaties and no alliances with any of the people within the promised land. And God said, because if you do that, you will be ensnared by their practices. You'll become ensnared by their ways. You'll be drawn into their things that they do and it will defeat you spiritually, morally and ruin your relationship with God. So it was very clear to Israel. God spelled it out multiple times. Do not make an alliance, a treaty, a pact with any who are within the land of Canaan. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 20 God there did grant them permission to enter into alliances or maybe trade deals with neighboring foreign nations that were outside of the territory, that were outside of the land that maybe they could trade with and so forth. They were allowed to do that. What's interesting is the people of Gibeon come here and they very wisely say, make a treaty with us. We're from far away. Now, to me, this is interesting. How do they know that? I, I don't know. But again, this just reminds me that when the devil works, boy, the devil does his homework. He runs surveillance. <laughs> he knows what works. The devil knows how to quote scripture. Jesus shows us that in the temptation of Jesus himself. The devil there is quoting scripture. He's twisting it a little bit, but he quotes it pretty accurate. And sometimes because people are so ignorant of the word of God themselves, even when the devil distorts scripture a little bit, God's people are too naive. They don't take time to know the Bible for themselves. So the devil quotes scripture, just changes it a little bit, and God's people just buy right into it, hook, line, and sinker. And, and, and the devil's smart. And so the devil here sends these people, the Gibeonites, in this situation, working craftily, make a covenant with us, they're saying. We've come from a far country, they ask Joshua and the people. Look at verse 7. Here's what happens now. It says, The men of Israel, now watch what happens here, said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us. Hmm. So how can we make a covenant with you? Now notice again, they remember they're not supposed to make a covenant with the people among them. What is very interesting is they come, they're dressed the part, they play the part, they say all the right lines, they do all the right things, they got all the provisions and the samples to make their story look so credible. I mean, these, these people are good con artists. They, they're doing their job well. But notice what happens. It says in verse 7, when they hear, make a covenant with us, their first inclination is for them to say, wait a minute, perhaps you dwell among us how can we make a covenant with you? Then they say in the next verse, we are your servants. And Joshua said, who are you and where do you come from? Now, I want you to notice what's happening here. What takes place? God in his love and grace gives Israel and Joshua what? A hesitation, a discernment from his spirit where they discern. I don't know. Something seems a little, I don't know. And there's something in them that causes them to hesitate. They don't just enter right into it. Something within them causes a little bit of reluctance. We use this term among spiritual life where we say, I have a, a check in my spirit. You know, you get a check engine light on your car. You, you may not understand. I quite often don't. You know, what exactly is going wrong? Sometimes you don't, you can't even tell something's not functioning right in your car, but you have this check engine light comes on that says you better check 
before the whole engine blows up. Something's not right here. And God in his love and his grace, if we were to be honest, I think honestly, in all of our lives, any time when we've been conned or duped or taken advantage of, whether it's in business or some sales thing or some situation or relationship or even in spiritual life where we entered into something and the devil duped us and conned us and drew us into something we shouldn't, is it not true so often I can look back in hindsight afterwards and go, you know, there was that moment before I drove through the green light where I, I sensed the yellow blinking light. Where there was this hesitation, there was this sense of of reluctance, something within me said, I don't know, I just for some reason, I, I have a hesitation, I have a check in my spirit about it, I can't even understand why, I don't even know all the details, but the reality is God in his love gives us that discernment for a reason, and listen, how much more is that true for you and I in this room tonight, in this part of spiritual journey on the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ, where we have the indwelling spirit of God inside of us, who Jesus calls the spirit of truth. And truth is the opposite of error, which means that when something is in error, the spirit of God's truth within us will say, that's not right. And we may not even be able to put our finger on it. Maybe we can't even quote chapter and verse or know why it's not right. But it's just the spirit of holiness. It's the spirit of truth giving us a level of discernment to cause us to feel that hesitation and make us maybe question it and have some level of pause. And we need to be sensitive to that. We need to pay more attention to that. Those are occasions when we should hit the pause button and we should pray it through. And we shouldn't be hasty to rush into something, but we should wait and say, I, I, I need to, I don't know, just for some reason I feel a little uneasy about this. I need to pray or think about that a little more. And, and when we do that, often we spare ourselves because God is always faithful to reveal stuff in time if we give him time to reveal it. And, and God is always faithful to do that in our lives. So pay attention when there's that reservation there. The Bible tells us in Colossians 3, very, very important verse, it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. This is a part of the Christian life. As a Christian, we live a life in relative peace, which means that as you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you make peace with God, and then you have the peace of God in your life as you're in a regular relationship with the Lord. There's a measure of peace in your life. So when something's disturbing that peace within you, you need to be sensitive to that. I just there's something's disturbing my peace about this this situation or or what's going on here. And again, that word the peace of Christ rule in your heart in Colossians three, it's where we translate our English word today, umpire. And what does an umpire do? He watches things, he observes, and then he either says safe or out. And this is what the Holy Spirit does as you process situations as you pray through things as you carefully move through your life the holy spirit of god within you will either say this is safe or he'll say get this out of here this is out of lines this is out of god's will and these are the occasions where we need to pay attention so they sense how do we know if you're not from far away perhaps you dwell among us if so, how could we make a covenant with you? So Joshua hears them say to him, we are your servants. And Joshua says, verse 8, who are you and where do you come from? Verse 9, they then say in response, oh, we come from a very far country. 
Your servants have come. Now watch this. Here comes the God speak. Because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and of all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon, king of Heshbon and Og of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. And notice they make no mention of what happened at Jericho or Ai because that would blow their cover. They're really good at this. They even refer to what happened back in Egypt. I mean, you're going back four decades ago. What happened in Egypt? That's 40 years ago. Therefore, verse 11, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, take provisions with you for the journey. Go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants. We want to submit ourselves to you because of your great God. Now, therefore, they say, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours, we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins, which were filled with new wine and see, they are torn. And these are garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. So notice what they do, because again, this is another indication sometimes blink, blink, flash, flash of when we should be more discerning and kind of be on guard a little bit. Notice a few things begins to happen as they dialogue. First of all, back in verse 8, they say to Joshua, we are your servants. Again, what, what, what kind of speak is this? There's this whole kind of uh, you know, attitude of, you know, hey, we, we, we're on your side, man. And, and this, we want to be compliant and submissive to you. And, and then verse 9 and 10, they, they begin all the spiritual talk that God speaks. We've heard of your God and his power and the things that he's done. And, 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 let me, and what are they doing? They're basically using God speak and flattery and a bunch of spiritual verbiage. And listen, people do this stuff. People do this stuff. And we need to be careful. I don't care if you come quoting a Bible verse and talking about Jesus. The devil does that. <laughs> and, and sometimes we can be very naive as Christians. In fact, and, and I may be seen as critical for saying this, sometimes I'm more alarmed and more on guard when people act hyper-spiritual when I first meet them. Because it's almost like I feel like they're, they're, they're trying to overcompensate. Like, what are you hiding, man? What do you have to quote 17 Bible verses for? I just, I just met you. What's your name? You know what I mean? And... and and, and, and some people, there's this real hyper-spirituality and, 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 they, and, and to me it makes me wonder, what, what's, what's the deal with that? What, what are you trying to kind of cover up there? And, and, and be careful of this kind of thing. Just because people speak in spiritual language and they can quote verses and they may have good information in their head intellectually about God and His Word and the things of the Lord, don't just instantly be naive and just subscribe to that and think that this is a safe person or a good spiritual connection for me to make in a relationship. Be, be careful of that. Look a little further. Pray a little longer. Especially, too, if you're having that hesitation that only can come from God because God knows all things. And God does know the truth of what's going on in people's lives and situations. And if he gives us a hesitation, then we need to just be careful and be patient. So sometimes there's this thing of when people begin to speak in this way and they're describing, we've heard of your Lord and the name of his fame and what he's done, his power, and we've been sent here. And I mean, they just play all the cards right. They say all the right things. 
And, and what they're trying to do here when you look at verses 11, 12, and 13 is they're trying to get Joshua and the people of Israel to do what? To make their decision based off of what they could see with their eyes. They're saying, come on, just can't you tell? I mean, what more could you ask for? Notice how they say a few times, look now, see. In other words, evaluate. I mean, I, this couldn't look any better on paper. I mean, let me look at this. The evidence is so clear. And, and they're saying, look how this appears. I mean, it's so obvious. It's so evident. It's very convincing. Can't you see it? It's going to work out perfect. And, and they're trying to draw them into making a quick decision. And the Bible says that he who believes does not act in haste. The book of Proverbs cautions about hasty decisions. God's never in a hurry in the Bible. The only time, in fact, you ever see God in a hurry in the Bible is when the prodigal son is returning home and God is in a hurry to go back and draw that one in in love and embrace them. So if you ever want to be in a hurry, that's the only time you should be in a hurry. God's never in a hurry. God's always on time, but God's never in a hurry. If God's in it, what's the rush? What's the rush? And, and, and so the Bible cautions us against hastiness, impulsive decisions, and making decisions at times just by how things appear on the surface because the truth of the matter is things are not always as they appear. They're not always as they appear. We live, the Bible says, by faith, not by sight. Our eyes can deceive us. Things can look great on the surface and what we don't realize is if we flip the next page in the contract, we realize, oh, I, I should have looked at page two. I should have realized what was on the other. I didn't, oh, I didn't know when I bit onto that bait that there was a hook inside of that that was going to snag me in the mouth. I, and, and a lot of times we can tend to make a mistake of just being impulsive or hasty. We just evaluate how it looks. It looks so good. This person, that relationship, this opportunity, this situation, and we enter into things because of how they appear and how they look, and that is always a dangerous thing. So they're saying, look, see, make this treaty with us. Look at verse 14, key verse of the chapter. It says, then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. Uh, let me say, that is a Bible verse worthy of memorization. This story, they took sample of some of their provisions. They went off of what they could see, off of the physical evidence, off of what their eyes could behold, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. Prayerlessness. They thought, okay, with no sense of, what do we need to pray about this for? It's so, this is such an obvious thing. This is so evident. It's such a good deal. I mean, what, what do you need to pray about a, a deal that good for? And, and we can make grievous mistakes when we just go off of our own logic, our own reasoning. We think, well, I'm pretty smart. I'm pretty experienced. I'm a mature Christian now. I'm a mature individual. I'm not a little kid anymore. I handled things like this before. And those can be the occasions when we get duped and deceived and get into some of the biggest messes and fail in some of the greatest ways when we just look at how it is on the surface, but we fail to pause and to say, God, this looks good. It looks legitimate. But Lord, is this from you? It looks like it is. But Lord, can you just confirm that it is first? Lord, is this what you want from me? Is, is Lord, is there something else? Maybe this is good on the surface, but maybe this just isn't what you want from me. Do you have something else better for me, God? 
And we need to take the time to ask God's counsel, to ask his advice and direction and prayerlessness and leaning on our own understanding. Boy, how that can so often get us into trouble. This is one of the biggest mistakes that we can make spiritually in our decision making of failing to ask the counsel of the Lord in everything. In everything. Big and small issues. This is such an important thing. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says what? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. That's what we want. Our own understanding can be a very, very dangerous thing and get us into a lot of problems. And perhaps you can think of times when this has happened. So that's why I say memorize this verse because it'll be helpful when the Holy Spirit recalls it to mind when you're in a situation where you remember, you know what? Yeah, I mean, it looks good it's, and it seems simple, but, but I, sh- I, I should take a little bit of time just to ask God's counsel, just to make sure. I just want to check in with God first and to just ask the counsel of the Lord If we do that, we would spare ourselves so much heartache, so many problems and pain. You know, what's that great hymn? Oh, what, you know, uh, well, what peace we often forfeit, right? What's the next part? Oh, what grievous strain we bear. All because, we know that part, we do not carry what? Everything to God in prayer. That is so important, and this is just, man, I think a great biblical truth to take to heart. They now enter in to something that's going to be very outside of what God wants for them. Look at verse 15. They did not ask counsel of the Lord, verse 15, so Joshua made peace with them, and he made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore them. So they do exactly contrary to what God's word told them to do, They make a mistake here. This is a failure on the part of the leadership. And of all people, leaders should be the first to seek God in prayer about things. And now these leaders have entered themselves and the people of God into this alliance that was not part of God's will for them. And they swore an oath to them, which now in a sense has bound them to this. Verse 16, it happened at the end of, look at that, three days. Wow. Three days later, after they made the covenant with them, that they heard they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Notice how the truth always comes out. It always comes out in time. That's why I say again, we need to give God time. We need to give God time. In all things, whether we're interacting with people, give God time. Let, just be patient. What's the rush? Be patient. Let God bring to the surface if there's something we need to know, something we need to be aware of in a situation, whatever. Because God always brings, and he'll either bring it up so we can know ahead of time, or if not, we enter into things, and then sure enough, two, three days later, three weeks later, three months later, all of a sudden the truth comes out as it does here. They find out, oh no, these people live just 25 miles away from where we're at, and they're here in the land, and we've made a treaty with them. Verse 17, the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day, and their cities were Gibeon and Chepharoth and Beeroth and Kirjath-Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them because their rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel, and all the congregation complained against the rulers. So the congregation wanted to attack them, 
but the rulers now are, find themselves in this place of conflict so they're upset now with their rulers because of this decision that's been made and all the rulers said to the congregation verse 19 we have sworn to them by the Lord the God of Israel now therefore we may not touch them this we will do to them we will let them live lest wrath be upon us two wrongs don't make a right the idea is here because of the oath which we swore to them now take notice what they do here the leaders have made a mistake they've entered into an alliance a treaty with people they were not supposed to enter into the people are upset there are consequences to bad decisions they now have to face that they've entered into this relationship but they swore to these people an oath a commitment by the Lord before the Lord so what they now say in essence is you know what we entered into something a contract a situation uh, that we should not have however we gave our word before God and though it was a poor decision we entered into this and therefore we need to satisfy our obligation that we've now made you know sometimes I think this can be the the case in all of our lives I love Psalm 15 where there it says the person who swears to his own hurt and does not change and the idea there is this a person who in a desire to honor and respect God at times knows that you still keep your vow even if it's personally hard for you to do it even if it costs you to do it you still keep your oath you still honor your word because you made a commitment you made a vow and even though it may be harmful to you or hurtful to do such but you've now entered into this so therefore in order to honor God you keep your word and you honor your commitment I think this is important for Christians because sometimes Christians make foolish financial decisions. Let's just be honest. And we enter into something. Maybe we charge up something on credit that we don't have the money for. Look, if you entered into that and you made the foolish decision financially and maybe afterwards you realize that wasn't a very good decision financially, it was poor stewardship, don't take the easy way out. You made an obligation. You made a commitment. You need to satisfy that responsibility financially even though it may be hard to do it. Why? Because you honor the Lord and you've given your word and you've entered into that. Sometimes we, at times, enter into a commitment. We say, and oh man, I wish I wouldn't have committed myself to that. That's going to be really inconvenient now and it's going to throw a ret... Well, yeah, maybe it was a bad decision, but you've made that decision now and now you need to honor it. This happens at times, even though it's outside of God's will, sometimes a Christian will marry a non-Christian person and they'll enter into an unequally yoke. And then they realize afterwards, oh my goodness, what did I do? How did I enter? And, and they find themselves now, in a, but listen, you've made a vow. You've entered in, now it's your responsibility before God, the Bible says, to honor that vow and to honor that relationship and seek to be the presence of Christ to that unsaved spouse. You've entered into that marriage now. And now it's your responsibility, though it may hurt to keep that oath and be difficult to say, you know what, I made a commitment, I've sworn to the Lord in relation to this and I need to honor that and demonstrate integrity and do it for God and trust God with the results and, and let God just sort through what happens afterwards. But this is, I think, a good example here. The people are angry. What are we doing? Let's just cut. And they say, look, we, we, no, you can't touch them we entered into a covenant with them we don't want God to bring his wrath upon us two wrongs don't make a right and we swore to them the commitment that we did verse 21 so the ruler said let them live but let them be woodcutters and water carriers 
for all the congregation as the rulers had promised to them. So they, in a sense, relegate them now to servitude, to function as servants, carrying water and cutting wood for the congregation of God's people. They became their servants and subjected them to that servanthood because of this. Verse 22, then Joshua called for them and spoke to them, that is the Gibeonites now, and he says to them, why have you deceived us, saying we are very far from you when you dwell near us? Now, what's Joshua doing there? I have written in my Bible margin there, rebuke. That's what he's doing. What happened, happened. But what he is doing is he's calling them out on the truth. He's saying, what did you do that for? You lied to us. This is what the Bible, this is what rebuke is. Rebuke is confronting someone when they're legitimately wrong. It doesn't mean you have to be confrontational. It doesn't mean you have to be rude. But when somebody is legitimately wrong and it's flat out evident, there is a time and a place for rebuke because rebuke leads to correction and correction leads to humility and that can lead to restoration. So Joshua's rebuking them. He says, look, what, what did you do? You lied to us. Why would you do that? Why would you deceive us? So he's calling them out on what they've done. He doesn't just ignore it. Let's just brush it under the rug. I don't want to be confrontational. And so many times that's what we're like. Well, I don't want to be kind of like confrontation. Well, I don't like it either. But you don't have to be confrontational to confront something. This is our confusion. Well, you can confront something in a controlled way in love and just speak the truth. And, and here's what Joshua said. Why did you lie to us, he says. Now, therefore, verse 23, he says, you are cursed and none of you shall be freed from being our slaves. Woodcutters and water carriers you shall be for the house of my God. So they were made servants to cut wood and to bring and carry water. Interesting, for the house of God. Now, this is smart on Joshua's behalf. He says, you know, these are pagan people. We shouldn't have entered into this relationship with them. So what does he do? He gives them a role that exposes them to the house of God, the presence of God, the things of God continuously. Because what's Joshua thinking? I want to redeem my mistake. Hopefully these people, if they're exposed to the house of God and the presence of God, they'll get saved and they'll come to know the Lord and God can redeem them. This is called redeeming your mistakes here. So he just wisely says, okay, you're going to do some work for us and here's where you're going to do the work, down at the temple, he says. So they answered Joshua and said, because your servants were clearly told the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the land the inhabitants of the land from before you therefore we were very much afraid for our lives because of you and have done this thing they said, we feared your god and and we didn't know how to handle it correctly and again they just made a poor choice uh, because they were trying to do the best with what information and light they had which was very little they said we were fearful for our lives and now here we are in your hands do with us as seems good and right to us so he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel. So they did not kill them. And that day, Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. Now, I want you to take note of what Joshua does here. This is incredible wisdom in light of a prior poor decision. What Joshua shows us here is when we make mistakes, and we all will, poor decisions, and then poor decisions bring the consequences and the results. When you make a mistake, it's not the end of the world. Make the most out of your mistake. What does Joshua do? Joshua here, he makes his mistake work for him. 
No pun intended. Do you see what I'm saying? He says, this was a mistake. I shouldn't have entered into a relationship or an alliance with you. But since it's a mistake, I'm going to get the most out of the mistake. And he makes his mistake work for him as woodcutters and water carriers down at the house of God to help in the worship system. And when you and I make mistakes, instead of crying over spilled milk or being depressed the rest of our lives or woe is me and oh, I can't. And, just, and oh, look, make your mistake work for you. Learn what you can from it and take what you now have and use that to your advantage to help you to do better in a situation. Use it to help you to be a better person, to be more productive in a different way. Make your mistake work for you. This is a great tool. Just seeking God for that kind of wisdom and having a heart to say, look, you know, God is bigger than my mistakes. You know, I just sent my uh, daughter at college a quote the other night I saw on the wall when we were back to school night it said if you're not making mistakes you're not doing anything everybody makes mistakes if you you're so proud you don't make mistakes maybe you shouldn't be because you're probably a pretty lazy person that does nothing and tries nothing and attempts nothing everybody makes mistakes that's part of life but what we can do is take our mistakes and use them constructively to channel them. And this is a good thing that you see Joshua doing here. Well, let's look at a few verses of chapter 10. There's a great story here I want to kind of conclude with tonight before we worship. It says, It came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and utterly destroyed it, as he'd done Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them that they feared greatly. Why? Look, because Gibeon was a great city. And uh-oh, if they entered into an alliance, they were a stronger city than us. We're really in big trouble. Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and its men were mighty. Then Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Jephiah, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, and the same kings, I'm not going to read again, gathered together and went up in all their armies, and they camped before Gibeon and made war against it. So, as Adonai Zedek, this one king, hears that the men of Gibeon were so afraid as a very strong people, apparently a pretty substantial uh, nation among the, the land there, and that they in fear subjected themselves to a practice of being submitted to Israel, they think, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? So he now calls for a five-king alliance of some of the surrounding territories. And he says, look, let's rally together and let's go up. He says, come help me, verse 4, and let's attack Gibeon because they've made peace with Joshua. In other words, let's go back and reclaim territory that we've lost as people in this land. And he calls for this five-king confederation to come together. Now, interesting, he wants to reclaim Gibeon, attack and reclaim Gibeon, because that's territory they lost. And can I say this? Whenever the devil loses territory, he's going to try and reclaim that territory in your life. So be on guard against that. You defeat the devil, you overcome the devil in some area, you start to move forward in your Christian life, you have victory over some sin or some habit or, or just some area or issue in your life, 
I assure you this, though God's given you victory, the devil is not going to just stand there and, and give you the spiritual Emmy Award and give standing ovation. Oh, I'm really proud of you. Good job. But he is going to do his best to try and reclaim and attack you in that area and reclaim what you have taken in a sense that maybe once was territory he had against you spiritually. So be on guard. So this king calls for five kings to come together. They go up and set an attack and make war against the people of Gibeon. Verse 6, the men of Gibeon, they do the right, right thing here, they send to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal saying, do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly. Save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. Now, if I was writing the Bible, verse 7 would say, so Joshua said, oh yeah? Aren't you the ones that deceived us? We're actually kind of busy right now. Hope you fare well in that warfare. Right? Joshua could have had that bitter, resentful, angry attitude, right? Where he would say, hey, I guess what comes around goes around. You sow and you reap. That's a biblical principle, isn't it? And yeah, you deceived us. And boy, isn't it interesting. Now, five of your own surrounding territories are coming and trying to destroy you. Joshua doesn't do that. Why? Because he has a heart that's in tune with the Lord and Jesus would never do that. Jesus would never do that. Now, a lot of times we fail the Lord, betray the Lord. He never, in a sense, abandons us and just says, well, I guess what goes around comes around. And, and, and you're just going to have to... He never does that. They call upon Joshua to come save them. That's a good thing to do. When you are threatened and being attacked by your enemies, the best thing to do is just to call upon Joshua, to call upon Jesus, say, Lord, come save me. Despite what I deserve, I know I've done wrong recently. Lord, I know I've let you down, failed. I've taken advantage of your grace and kindness. Lord, I don't deserve it an ounce, but please come save me. Would you please come rescue me? And verse 7 says, Joshua ascended from Gilgal and all the people of war with him and the mighty men of valor. So he comes from 25 miles away, marches, it seems, overnight to get there up in elevated territory. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Now keep in mind, this is five kings, five nations, up to this point, how many nations has Israel fought at once in battle? One. Now there's five nations. I bet you Joshua was perhaps a little bit intimidated in doing this, but the Lord says to him, Joshua, don't worry about this. I'm going to give you victory. In fact, here's what's happening. What God is doing, again, God is taking their blunder. What was their blunder? Gibeon. Why are they responding to this battle now? Because they've entered into a relationship with Gibeon. And what's God going to do? He's going to take their blunder and he's going to turn their blunder into a blessing. Why? Because God says, instead of just whooping one at a time, this time you're going to get five for one. I'm going to give you five territories in one battle. And again, here is God in his incredible grace. He takes their mistake, their failure, their past problem, and God turns it around. And God says, even though that was an area of failure because I'm gracious, I'm going to give you five times the victory in this one battle. I'm still going to help you to get victory. And they're going to conquer five people, five territories at once in one battle. It's amazing the way the Lord works despite our failures. Amen. Verse 9, Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal, which shows you Joshua believed the word of the Lord and he responded. 
It might have looked intimidating. Five nations. But he had the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Joshua, don't be afraid. I've given you victory. It's yours. I'm going to show up. I'm going to help you. I'm going to empower you. Joshua believed the word of the Lord. He responds with all the fighting men. They come up. Verse 10. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Aran, struck them down as far as Azekah and Makeda. And it happened, verse 11, as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Aran. Look at this. The Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And there were more who died in that battle, look, from the hailstones that the Lord threw down than the children of Israel killed with the sword. So who took on the bigger part of the battle? God did. Because the battle belongs to the Lord. And the Lord, yes, calls us to do our part in cooperation humanly, but His power and His work so far supersedes. It does so much more for us. You know, some people look and say, well, what was this? An isolated hailstorm? And how does that happen? To me, here's the most incredible part of the miracle. This is a miracle. This isn't a hailstorm. This is a miracle. I'll tell you why it's a miracle. Because when the hailstones came from heaven, they only hit the enemies. They didn't hit the Israelites. God's got really good aim. He could pitch a no-hitter any day. Any day. Here, hailstones are coming from heaven. A hailstones are coming from heaven. And how is God hitting only the people that are the enemies and it doesn't touch one of the Israelites? Because it ain't a hailstorm. It's a heaven storm. It's God doing it. And God's able to separate his judgment between the righteous and the unrighteous. This is a miracle. God just working on our behalf. And God's got great aim, man. He's got, he's, he's got things right on target. And when God works, just get out of the way and let God work. He knows how to target and deal with things and deal with individuals. And these hailstones come. And Joshua, verse 12, spoke to the Lord in that day, as this was happening, when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel and said, in the sight of all Israel, out loud, this is his prayer. Pretty bold prayer. Confident guy. Sun, stand still. <laughs> over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. And is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. Now, Joshua is trying to mop up this victory and he realizes he's running out of daylight. So he's emboldened in faith, seeing God work, understanding the power of God, that his favor is towards his people. And Joshua, out loud, this isn't one of those private prayers, in case it doesn't work, nobody will know. He boldly prays out loud, God, I need more daylight. Make the sun stand. Don't let the sun set. And tell the moon to go away until we can finish. I need some additional daylight. This is what the Bible calls Joshua's long day. And God does it. So that he can win a battle. Now, we've seen some pretty incredible miracles in the Bible. This to me is probably one of the biggest miracles. Maybe one of the greatest miracles. Keep in mind, this isn't just a local miracle. Parting of the Red Sea. Wow, parting of the Red Sea. Walk through on dry ground. That's incredible, but that's a local miracle. 
God stops the heavens and the earth, all the solar system, everything that's involved with the sun setting, the earth spinning. This is a global miracle. God works and does something among all of heaven and earth to make that sun stand still to answer Joshua's request to help Joshua in his particular situation. And what's he doing? He's fighting a battle. And God does such an... I mean, do you want to talk about the power of God on display? And that God does this for this one man in this situation? And if God would do that, if God would stop the heavens and the earth to help Joshua win a military victory, how much power do you need for the things that go on in your life? And do you think God won't do something for you? Do you think God won't help you? This is the power of God, what he has the ability to do. This is an incredible miracle if you ponder. People try and say, well, how did that happen? And was it eclipse or this or that? Well, that was a miracle. I don't care how it happened. I don't care how it happened. Trish and I were recently with her grandmother. She's 86, right? Uh, visiting her the other day and she was talking about how the Lord's always worked in her life this and that or whatever and, 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 and she, she I love her simplicity very childlike faith you know and, and she just said I don't care if they say God didn't did it. if God wants to do it God just goes one two three and it's done <laughs> and I thought man that's good if God wants to do it just one two three and it's done I don't care what everybody else is saying it, if done if it's done and this is Joshua here he just I mean, what a bold prayer. Look at verse 14. There has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Again, do you see that? The Lord heeded the voice of a man. It's just a man. David says, what is man that you're mindful of him? God, What? why would you even... We're so insignificant. We're so unworthy. We give you such a headache. God, why would you even pay attention to us? And yet, beyond that, he heeds the voice of our prayer and at times will show such power for just something in just your life or my life. And will work in incredible. Look, I want to encourage you. Take God at his word. I'm not asking you to stop the solar system and cause all kinds of issues in the, in, in the world. But what do you need God to do for you? Ask him. Don't be afraid to ask him bold things. I end with this story. I remember when we uh, you know, had made the decision to leave our church in York and to come here. And of course, we had to you know, put our house on the market to be able to sell, to move down here and all those things. Okay, how's all this going to work? And you know, put our house on the market. And it was the absolute worst time a few years ago, of course, to sell a house. And other houses in the neighborhood were, were up. And, and you know, we had a limited time frame. I had resigned from my position at Calvary Chapel of York. The other pastor came on staff. I wanted to make sure he had a salary. It wasn't like we had enough to... There were certain time windows of things had to happen. It wasn't as if I was coming here with some prearranged salary, like a business deal. And so all these pieces had to come together and our house needed to sell. And, and this was a total step of faith. And, and I, you know the process where you try and clean the house and get it ready for somebody to come look at it. You ever done that process before? And the headache, you try and have every single thing perfect so when they do the walkthrough that it looks so fake, <laughs> right? Like a magazine, they buy it. And it's just so stressful doing that because nobody lives like that. 
And so we're going through that whole process there. And I remember, you know, it was like we're, you know, we weren't getting any offers and we're starting to get stressed. And I was reading through Joshua one time in my devotions. And in fact, I remember when I was reading through the, the walls of, of Jericho and I was sharing at the dinner table with, the, with Trish and the kids about reading the walls of Jericho. And I'm saying, that's maybe what we need to do. We need to just walk around this house and pray the walls come down and, and, and this and that. And, and of course, Carly was my younger faith-inspired one. And she said, let's do it. And she's my one that's a little crazy, so I had to take, I didn't act like I had little faith at this point. I'm her dad, right? So, all right, let's do it. So we walked around the house seven times. And I said, look, now we got to walk around her seven times in a row. And then when we're done, we need to scream in the middle of the front yard and pray that God brings all the walls down that are resisting us from having victory so our house will sell. And, and so we did this, and when we started, for, and we're, rah, we're out there you know, yelling, and Trish and the girls that are pulling the shades down, the older ones, you know, embarrassed to death probably. And then I took the real estate sign, and I picked it up out of the ground, and I threw it on the, threw it on the ground, and I said, oh, God's going to sell our house. And, and so then we didn't get an offer for a day or two, and I was starting to get a little nervous, thinking, oh, man, this is not looking good. And we got a call that somebody wanted to look at our house. It was a Wednesday night before church. And, you know, of all nights, to try and make the house look fake on a Wednesday night before church for a pastor's family is the worst curse of the devil in the world. And I could just tell, you know, th that Trish, the kids, my, just, there was just the sense of being drained, emotionally exhausted, like this was just getting weary. And I could tell everybody was getting weary. And that morning, I happened to read this chapter in my devotions about God making the sun stand, and God heeded the voice of one man and did something miraculous. So I told Trish and the girls, just go take them out, go get something to eat. I'll do the thing to get the house ready and then I'll you know, rush over to church and, and so on and so forth and try and lighten the load for them. So I sent them away, go get the kids something to eat. I'll meet you at church and trying to run around and you know, get out of the door to still get to church on time. And before I left, I just remembered that passage and I just got on my knees on my kitchen floor and I just said, Lord, this is really stupid. But if you made the sun stand still so the people could win a battle, this house has got to sell. And Lord, Trish and the girls are tired and I can't fix this. And I can't stand seeing this weigh on them and it's exhausting and God, this house has to sell. If the house doesn't sell, we can't move forward with what you're leading us to do. You have to sell this house, God. Please. And I just brought this passage before the Lord. Went and did church that night. When I got done church that night, I went and checked my home. I had a voice off my realtor. Hey, you need to come in the office tomorrow morning. We have an offer on your house. Awesome. The Lord acts at times. The Lord moves in situations. I just want to encourage you Nothing is too insignificant. This was for a battle, a military battle. There are things that are significant and important in your life. Don't be afraid at times to ask God in bold ways to do powerful things and to believe that a God who can make the sun stand still may want to act on your behalf. Do something really special, really helpful that's important to you. I love what it says. There has not been a day like it before and after where the Lord heeded the voice of a man. The voice of just one man, one woman. God hasn't changed. He loves you just as much. Let's stand. Let's pray together.